Hello and welcome back to Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairies. And today I'm very excited to have a special guest co-host, my dear friend and colleague, Annie Akmoody. Welcome, Annie. I am glad to be co-hosting today, Melissa. Thanks for jumping in. Darby had a, a member issue she was working on today, and so Annie was very generous to pop in as my co-host, so we're excited to have you. And um, first and foremost, I have a very important question, Annie. I heard something uh, really cool and interesting happen last week. We need you to tell us all about it, and that is the Derby, actually, for the first ah. time ever, happening the first week of yes. September. <laughs> It's always in May, and they, they push it back, and there was even supposed to be fans there, but last minute, uh, I think the, the COVID uh, concerns took over, and so there was no fans, but they did run the Derby, and um, it was an unexpected win by Authentic, which uh, was not uh, very, uh, you know, he wasn't ranked very high in the expectations of winning, and so it was a very uh, good race and uh, won a couple bucks on it actually which i never know how to bet so that that tells you how much i i follow horse racing but it was it was it was very fun interesting to have it in labor day and glad they could still do the you know the big tradition at churchill down so it's, it's good that they didn't get to skip the year so you know hopefully next year it'll be in may yes yeah hopefully we'll start getting back to normal i although i don't even know what normal is anymore but it sounded exciting <laughs> and i know you guys living in louisville have been in involved in the derby and derby parties for a few years now so it was it's good that they could actually i mean it's it's obviously not the same but it's some some semblance of normal hey, i'm just glad i still got to wear a fancy hat there you go uh, so <laughs> Andy, uh, other than that we, we we've been seeing all these kind of jokes that 2020 is a dumpster fire and literally out here in california it's not even a dumpster fire it's the whole state on fire so it's it's good to hear about something fun and unique happening and keeping it a little more lighthearted. We do have a little bit heavier episode today, Annie, and you're going to first um, talk about the market updates. Um, we're going to have Paul with an update on some environmental issues that are happening. Anya's going to join us to talk Prop 15. And then um, trying to keep with the theme of getting folks prepared just in case 2020 gets worse. Um, we have a dairyman who is also a volunteer firefighter. His name is Rick Nicholson, and he's going to join us to talk about some important tips for producers about emergency preparedness on their farms. So it's a pretty full episode. I think we're going to have a good time today and get some good information. Interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. So without further ado, Annie, I'll let you take it away with the market update. It's been another week of slow price movement for most commodities. We've had um, a slowdown in cheese, though, which is great because it had been coming down at the pace of 30 to 20 cents um, each week. And finally, this week, things slowed down and it was down only four cents. So a dollar AD now for USDA uh, block cheese prices. Um, there has been a lot of action. Uh, we mentioned last week things were moving up on the CME price and it continued this week. We're at 215 a pound now for block cheese, the CME. So this is good news because as I've mentioned before, um, cheese prices and butter prices and all the USDA prices uh, tend to lag um, the C what's happening at the CME. And so this has given us a glimpse that our USDA price might be about to turn a corner, which would be um, really, really good. Um, so 
you know, we've talked about the, the PPD the past few months. And so the larger the gap between class three and class four, the larger the PPD can get. And so with um, butter and powder still trailing behind and, you know, this cheese price rally I just mentioned, it could mean that the PPDs are going to remain in negative territory for a while. It hasn't been announced for August. Uh, it likely will be uh, negative, looking probably in the $550 range negative. Um, and so something to keep uh, in mind as we talk about these uh, skyrocketing cheese prices. If we look at butter, it really continues to act the opposite of cheese. You know, cheese is this volatility, the CME up and down, uh, you know, from $1.80 down to $1, up to $3, $1.50, you know, back at $2.15. If you look at butter, it's a lot more stability. We still settled at $1.50 on Wednesday. That was just a penny down from a week ago. The USDA price is following in the same uh, same line, dollar uh, forty seven this week. So not a whole lot of movement in um, in the butter market. Uh, some positive news came out of export data, and you know while butter volume shipped out of the country is very uh, it's not a very big percentage of total butter sales. Uh, at least things were moving in the right direction. So if we look at July, butter fat exports were up one hundred twelve percent year over year. Obviously, July last year was terrible numbers, but um, it's at least good to see it was moving in the right direction. And this marked a highly monthly volume since uh, February of 2019. Um, on USDA's not dry milk price, it was a little bit disappointing this week. Um, you know, in USDA price, I mean, last week was a bit disappointing. This week was a little bit of an improvement. So we moved up to 97 cents a pound. We haven't quite made it to the dollar threshold, but at least uh, things are moving up at the CME, dollar four uh, this week. And so, you know, the price continues to forge ahead just slowly but surely. Um, so we can hope that, you know, these gains at CME are, uh, make their way soon in the federal order prices. And if we look at trade data, um, things are really looking up in July for powder exports. Export volume was up 52% from a year ago, which is really good because, uh, for powder export markets are a key component of, uh, you know, where production goes between 70 and 80% of powder produced, um, in the U.S. goes to export. And so that uh, certainly is a very important number to uh, keep in mind. And speaking of export, overall, total U.S. dairy export volume is up 23% year over year in July. So a good performance there. And according to the U.S. Dairy Export Council, U.S. exports in July were the equivalent of almost 17% of the total U.S. milk production. In the same time last year, we were just 14%. And so overall, that's a good performance for our um, trade data. So uh, thank you for listening. And until next week, back to you. Hey, thanks again, Annie, for that market update. Now we're going to jump over to my time chatting with Paul Souza about some environmental issues affecting some of our producers in Merced County. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you for having me again, Melissa. Absolutely. And Paul, you're here today to talk about um, an issue that's specific to certain members of Western Certain Dairymen. Um, but we do that sometimes and we just cover something that might be specific to a certain geographic area or a certain group of dairy producers and then, um, you know, it's a good way to let all dairymen know what's going on and then something that may potentially affect others in the future. So we're here today to, without further ado, talk about lagoons potentially intersecting groundwater. 
Yes, uh, thank you, Melissa. And I agree, I mean, uh, it's a topic that will specifically touch some dairymen, but I think everybody's interested in knowing, you know, what's going on in the industry, what's going on with my neighbors, what's going on even with dairies, you know, across the state. Um, and so, um, you know, I wanted to get on this topic so that those folks that are, the, that are directly affected, they know this firsthand, they've been suffering this for a year. There's some dairies that are gonna be dealing with this in the near future, and there's other dairies that won't, but they know what their neighbors are going through. So over the last year, the Central Valley uh, Regional Water Quality Control Board has been going after uh, certain lagoons. Lagoons have had this negative perception on dairies for years. I mean, it's just this issue that I have seen in my job. Uh, you know, somebody sees a dairy and they're like, well, the lagoon must be the problem. Uh, an example of this is when uh, dairies were first permitted for air quality in California. Um, lagoons were thought to be a major contributor to air quality. And I'm not talking about greenhouse gases here. I'm talking about volatile organic compounds and things that affect human health. Uh, and so the air district wanted to go after lagoons. They wanted to require lagoons to be covered. Uh, Western stood up for that and pushed back. And after research was done, lagoons were found not to be an issue for air quality. Uh, the Central Valley Dairy Representative Monitoring Program also did a study recently, uh, and I, I, I believe in this study, I know that they did a good job, where they found that uh, of the nitrogen moving from a dairy to groundwater, only 4% of that is coming from lagoons. And again, I said that, I think that uh, that, that was a, a very thorough study. They studied um, corrals and cropland and lagoons uh, and came up with 4% contribution from lagoons. But lagoons do have this negative perception, and, and I think they kind of draw attention from folks. So with the science kind of behind showing that it, the majority of lagoons aren't the problem, why is the water board focused on lagoons? Yeah, so environmental groups have obviously latched onto this and that you know negative perception of lagoons and they've continued to pressure the water board to do something about lagoons. Uh, that's what this is about. It's this pressure from environmental groups to the water board. You know, you've had this permit in place now on dairies in the Central Valley for 13 years. You haven't made anybody retrofit or, or do something with the lagoon. You have to do something. I've been in conversations with the water board on this uh, specific topic since uh, 2014. And I've been reporting that to our uh, board of directors at Western United Dairies and keeping them updated on that. Um, and so, you know, it's, this isn't like a new topic. It isn't something that's cutting edge, uh, but it's kind of getting to a point where uh, there's some additional pressure happening on this topic. Definitely. Um, so getting back to that 2%, could you talk a little bit about what lagoons they have identified as potential issues? Sure. Uh, so the Water Board has identified a group of dairies located in areas where groundwater is less than 10 feet from the ground surface, where they believe that there's a higher probability of those lagoons intersecting groundwater. And what that means is that the bottom of the lagoon is lower than the highest anticipated groundwater. You know, the lagoon was dug deep and sometimes on wet winters or in you know, summer irrigation season, the water table will be higher and it actually comes uh, into the lagoon and contacts the lagoon. And it's not saying that those dairies are intersecting groundwater. They're just saying if groundwater is less than 10 feet, we think that probability is higher. Potential. And so last year, the Water Board sent letters to about 70 dairies in Merced County that uh, meet that criteria, groundwater less than 10 feet. Um, and they're going to be sending letters to, and those guys know who they are. This is a nightmare that they've been living for about a year. But they're also telling uh, my, you know, me uh, that I'm engaged with them regularly that they're going to send letters to about 70 additional dairies 
outside of Merced County at some point in the future. Right now they're dealing with um, this mess in Merced County and they're gonna be sending more letters. So if you're a dairy and you know that groundwater is less than 10 feet uh, and you haven't gotten one of these letters because you're outside of Merced County, you can be expecting that. Um, they're at, what the, those letters are asking is that these dairies confirm the location of the bottom of the lagoon with respect to groundwater elevation through a survey uh, or the installation of temporary monitoring wells. And so, um, you know, some dairies are well into this and other dairies, you know, may not even be aware that this is happening to their neighbors. So if a dairy finds out that their um, lagoon is found to be in the groundwater table, what do they have to do? Yeah, so dairies where that survey finds that in fact the lagoon is intersecting groundwater are asked to provide a plan to eliminate that intersection, a remediation plan. Uh, dairies are responding with their own plans. Uh, this is uh, you know, important to know. The water board can't tell you how to fix it. You come up with your own plan for how to fix it, but the water board has to approve of that. Um, you know, some of the ones that I've kind of seen talked about at this point, uh, sometimes dairies have multiple lagoons uh, and they don't need one. Maybe it's, you know, the oldest, smallest lagoon that's the only one that's intersecting groundwater. They can fill in and abandon that lagoon. Uh, they can fill in the bottom of the lagoon and raise the bottom of the lagoon so that it's not as deep, potentially, um, if they, you know, can deal with uh, the capacity issues or they can increase the, the berm uh, heights, you know, lift up the bottom two feet, lift up the banks two feet potentially, is something that they can propose to the water board. Uh, lowering the water table in the area of the lagoon um, or some other option again that, you know, the, the dairy comes up with not the water board, but ultimately the water board needs to approve that option. Uh, timelines is also an important thing and I've talked to the water board plenty of times about timelines. Again, the dairy proposes a timeline for the water board's approval. Uh, so, you know, you can propose 50 years, they're probably not going to accept that, but the water board isn't saying, you know, you, you need to do this by one year. So there's a little bit of flexibility built into it, but still, this is a major issue for dairies that are finding themselves in this situation, Paul. Absolutely. Um, you know, some of these solutions are expensive uh, and they provide no return on investment for the changes that they're making on these dairies. This concerns me, you know, you go to the bank uh, and, you know, you want to build a freestall barn, you can say, but, you know, I'm going to have increased milk production by this much milk quality, efficiency. Uh, this is something you go to the bank and get a loan, there's zero return on investment on this. And so this really concerns me uh, for those dairies that find themselves in this situation. Um, that said, there, there is no easy way out of this. I mean, this is a Pandora's box that got opened. Um, and, you know, you're, you're not going to close this back up again easily. It's unfortunate. Um, Dairies need to work with their consultant to find the best solution for them. Look at the different solutions. Look at which one works best for you. Uh, what's most cost effective. Um, I do have some, you know, suggestions um, like NRCS funding is one of those. You can go to NRCS and get funding. But I, I want to be cautious about that one because the reality is with it, the amount of funding that NRCS has, they're not going to be able to do more than a couple of these. You know, maybe there's a couple of dairies that get NRCS funding to fix this situation, but not everybody's going to be able to. So maybe the news is get in there early, uh, get signed up and get that funding, but it's not going to be a, a solution for everyone. Uh, another one that I've heard is dairies that are considering digesters. Uh, maybe they find their lagoon is intersecting groundwater. They were thinking about putting in a digester. They roll the solution to the lagoon intersecting groundwater into building a new digester. We're going to build a new digester. We're going to retrofit that lagoon, uh, you know, and fill in the bottom of it or something uh, as part of that project and maybe have the digester company help pay for that. 
So the Water Board is holding a conference call for dairies in Merced County that have received the letter to date. Um, and if folks want more information about that, uh, they can call me with questions about that or email me. Um, I've been on this, uh, engaged on this issue for a long time since the beginning for, you know, this has been going on. Um, what I have to say is there, there is no magic wand. Uh, unfortunately, you know, once you get that letter, uh, it opens up, you know, a Pandora's box that you're, you're stuck with and you have to work through uh, to the end. Uh, and so, you know, dairies are struggling with, you know, the cost of this. Uh, the water board's getting kind of frustrated. This has been going on for over a year. Um, they're not getting, you know, plans. They're not getting dairymen to uh, respond to deadlines that they're asking about because of, and I understand that from the dairyman's perspective, because of uh, the cost of this, this is, you know, very challenging and people are, you know, kind of hesitant and, um, you know, don't want to step forward uh, with this any faster because it is such a huge challenge. Absolutely. Well, we just want to make sure members know and, and non-members, if, if they have questions, you can call Paul at our office or send him an email anytime. And Paul, can you just give us your email address real quick for folks that are listening? Sure. It's my first name, P-A-U-L at wudairies.com. Great. Well, thanks so much, Paul, for the update. And we'll kind of keep in touch with you on this issue because it sounds like it might grow over the next couple of months. Yep. Uh, as you know, the second round of dairies get this again, this, you know, the, the universe of this will expand and, and new dairies are going to have questions and, you know, wondering what's going on. So I'm always available to our members. They can uh, feel free to give me a call or email me. Great. Thanks, Paul. Sure. Thank you, Melissa. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our communities safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com/safety. Well, thank you, uh, Paul and Melissa. This was um, interesting. Now we're going to move on to a conversation with Anya, who will discuss uh, Prop 15. It's been uh, uh, on the news lately. There's a big push on the campaign on uh, no on Prop 15. So Anya, please tell us more about this. Thanks, Annie. As Annie mentioned, I'm here with Anya to talk a little bit more about Prop 15, a proposition that probably most of our producers have heard of, but it's good to make sure they get all the, the nitty gritty details. Thanks for joining me, Anya. Thank you for having me. So before we um, get too deep in the weeds, can you just give us a little bit of background on Prop 15, kind of where it came from and what the gist of the proposition actually is? Sure. In the late 70s, uh, particularly 1978, the California voters decided to pass something called Proposition 13, which um, essentially embodied the heart of what at the time was called the California Tax Revolt. And what that said is that it limited taxes to only 1% of a property sales price plus local bond assessments. And even Jerry Brown, um, in all of his terms, kind of called it the untouchable uh, the untouchable contract is what he called it. So as property values soared, tax bills were forcing people, especially retirees, out of their home, which is why Prop 13 at the time was so important. Uh, but Proposition 15, uh, apparently the, the, the new wave of um, folks in charge of the state have decided that this is now a touchable um, proposition. And Prop 15, as it's re read on the ballot, would raise property taxes on commercial and industrial buildings by as much as $12.5 billion annually. 
And it's the most significant tax measure to ever reach California ballots in, in decades. So um, there is a lot of controversy at the moment around the ballot title, which uh, essentially suggests that this is the schools and communities initiative. So it's easy for voters to overlook the true nature of the measure. And why dairy, um, particularly Western United Dairies, cares so significantly as we join our ag partners across the state in opposing this, bond, this proposition is uh, because it wouldn't uh, necessarily directly impact the agricultural land, but it does impact our improvements that we made. And I think one of the biggest things that tax accountants and accountants across the state will start to look at as they advise their clients about the um, detrimental impacts of this proposition is that it doesn't tie the tax to zoning, it ties it to use. And so if we've improved our dairies, if we've put in misters or cooling technology or added new barns or replaced barns, um, all of those things can be subject to um, what seems to be a, a never-ending skyrocket of valuation and assessment. We've been following this proposition before, way before it qualified for the ballot. We were keeping an eye on things as they started heating up. And then as soon as it qualified and we got the language, WUD took a pretty hard position. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what prompted that early decision and, and how we're handling yeah. that? Well, it's, it's some of the, um, this, this has been brewing for the better part of a year and a half. The um, Proposition 13, voted on by voters in the 70s, was long considered what people call the third rail of California politics. So, you know, you've got the legislature, you've got the governor, and then this third rail kind of balanced any budget slash tax discussion. And so any politician up at this point who kind of touched it would meet an untimely political demise because I think that this the nature of people that were property owners uh, would have booted them. So uh, as it started to form in 2019, a lot of groups appropriately took a wait and see method because they didn't think it would qualify. And of course, um, it has benefited from uh, a lot of support, uh, particularly on the state level union side, but also, um, and this is a very sad reality, most of the local governments in the state of California have um, not just signaled their support, but to the extent they legally can have put up money to fund the yes campaign. And so we're going up against like the California League of Cities, um, almost every single particularly urban, even suburban based board of supervisors has weighed in on this at the county level. Um, and so it's, it's really, uh, in some cases, we're fighting our friends for this because what they see at the local level is that this is an opportunity and a way to fund their currently underfunded pensions. And so Western, uh, when the ballot measure was finally uh, qualified in March and approved with title, that was when the Board of Western decided to go full bore and oppose it. Um, we did join a group called No on Proposition 15. Uh, if you want to look more information up about that group, it's noonprop15.org. But this group, at the time, it was it was the kind of the only one, um, and it's a collection of the California Business Roundtable, which means the Chamber of Commerce. You've got a variety of large uh, commercial real estate firms in there. Uh, just about anyone that owns commercial or industrial property is uh, become part of this coalition. So we joined that group early on. Um, we went ahead and registered with the FPPC for that group so that we can message with them. Uh, and you'll see a lot of engagement on our social media uh, on this No on Prop 15 campaign. 
great. I know our members are really appreciative of it. And, you know, being involved in the dairy business, as well as my own family business, it's, it's really a shame that this year of all years, when our businesses are so hard hit, we're looking at this tax that's going to affect them even worse. It's, it's well, it's, it's really the perfect, it's the perfect storm of disaster. Uh, this has not been, despite it being this uh, holy grail of third rails uh, in California politics, liberal activists and, and particularly the unions um, hated, they hated Proposition 13 because they thought it limited the ability of the state to raise taxes and they are and were 100% correct. But they took it to an extreme as they positioned the proposition over the last few years and blamed it for the state's financial trivials. Um, and so uh, as there looked like there was an overdependence on that upper 1%, you know, the, the supporters of, of getting rid or dismantling Prop 13 would come in and say, well, that's because we have Prop 13. And so they dreamed of a time to overturn it. And I think that uh, sadly, COVID has presented that moment because people know that California is in a $54 billion hole right now. Um, the election could go either way. Uh, and I think that they are really trying to target the fact that a lot of uh, middle income, lower income folks are feeling the weight of homeschooling. They're feeling the weight of uh, maybe lot losing their jobs. And this proposition uh, is, is readily positioned to help them fill that void. If you get down to the nitty gritty, and again, I, I encourage folks to uh, look at the noonprop15.org because one of the most, I think, independent documents that was published on this is from the LAO, which is, stands for the Legislature, Legislative Accountant's Office. And they're nonpartisan, uh, and they write things that are strictly based on fiscal impact. And if you read that LAO report, you get a terrible feeling in your stomach because what it says is that almost none of the monies will be readily available for any schools for about 15 years. And second, it says that of the monies that will eventually become available, because keep in mind, like tax assessors, we all, we've all met at least one, maybe multiple, depending on how big you are of a county, um, they have to muster and go out and reassess all these properties. So they need tens of millions of dollars to do that. That's why there's a massive delay in collecting money. So this $54 billion hole that is very popular on the, in, in the press circuit and the governor mentions it almost every single briefing he gives once a week, um, it's not going to be filled with this proposition, proposition on any level because of the delay in actually reassessing and valuating all these properties. So, but I think one of the most horrifying things that the LAO's report says, if you read it very clearly, it says that once the reassessment is done, monies begin to be collected, they back fund a lot of the pensions first at the mm -hmm. local level. And second, there's about four and a half percent of the collections that are left over for schools. And that's um, really horrifying considering the messaging around this is being sold as being for school. Yeah. Gosh, well, a lot of unfortunate pieces to this proposition. Um, how, Anya, can producers engage on this issue? Because I think when they hear this and really start digging into the meat and potatoes of the proposition, they're going to be pretty fired up and ready to engage. How can we, where should we send them? 
Well, we need to talk about it and we need to not be afraid to talk about it in the communities that we live and work in, just like we need to address, um, our, you know, our environmental impacts and our air quality impacts and our methane impacts. It's really important that producers and fam farmers uh, read up about this, figure out how it's going to impact them, and then go to their local supervisors and really you know, be the squeaky wheel. Um, this is going to damage us. We're already hurting as business because this isn't just, if you take farming out of the picture, because I know in certain parts of the state, uh, maybe agriculture is not viewed in the most respected light, but if you look at the small businesses that do provide an influx of cash um, and readily available um, taxes to you know, local government, they're not going to be able to afford, particularly now more than ever, to shoulder this new burden. You know, instead of hiring people back, they're going to have to figure out how to pay this increase in their assessment and their property taxes. And so, you know, you're small, like up, up in Ferndale, you've got yarn stores, you know, down in, in you know, Livermore, we've got, um, you know, lots of dollhouse stores. I mean, those mm -hmm. are the small, small businesses that are going to be impacted by this. But if you go to the Ace Hardwares and the Home Depots, I mean, they're not going to be hiring people because right. they can't afford to. And we're already in this hideous moment of, of history with how small businesses is being impacted by corona, coronavirus. And they're already getting bailouts for that. That's at the moment stalled. We don't know if there's going to be any more money there. I just think that the message here is uncertainty on uncertainty on uncertainty <laughs> leads to <laughs> statewide we'll take your apocalypse. Money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in the meantime, um, you know, the fires aren't being addressed. The school's issues aren't right. being addressed and aren't going to be addressed by this. This is not the answer. If local governments feel like they need a better partnership with their business, um, uh, you know, constituency, then let's work that out. Like, mm -hmm. you know, county by county, district by district, and try to figure out if there's another way to do this more equitably. But um, particularly for these restaurants, in fact, we uh, republished an amazing op-ed from Fox and Hounds from a guy named Patrick Mulvaney. And Patrick right. Mulvaney, and I, I know um, for our farmers, uh, that, that probably doesn't mean anything, but Patrick Mulvaney is the leading restaurateur, not just in Sacramento, but in the state of California. And he published a wonderful op-ed that simply said, I cannot shoulder this burden. I've been closed for six months. I've had to hire and fire and then rehire and fire people six times. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm already going to be closing half of my restaurants down because I can't afford to keep them open. Yeah. This is, this is real. And one of the wonderful things about being a partner with No on Prop 15 has been that they've been bringing in non-traditional allies at the table and making them a better voice for us. So if dairy farmers want more resources, the noonprop15.org website actually has, you can order yard signs. I know on the beef side, a lot of the beef guys have been really asking for, for like they want to put up these big banners on I-5 and you know, sure. the 580. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know how many of us have that, that street side luxury, but <laughs> uh, there are also uh, lots of buttons, but I have been recommending that every farmer who is concerned about this should talk to their local government and basically try to peel them off or maybe even oppose Prop 15. Right. Um, and what we've managed to do thus far, and, and I, I need to find some like a long four by four to knock on, um, the amount of strife that's gone on in the state of California has prevented the governor from taking a position on Prop 15. And that may be 
that's a very powerful message so far um, because he's taken positions on a lot of other propositions. And uh, I think that if we can keep filling his inbox with, you know, Modoc County those, does this, and then we start going down to San Bernardino County, mm-hmm. and then we start hitting some of the critically affected Valley towns and For their sure. counties, that's really going to help. Good. Well, they can always also producers can reach out to us, um, call our office. We'll connect you with those resources as well. But gee, thanks Anya for filling us in on this. I know uh, I've talked to a lot of producers who are really concerned and just the extra bit of information is good. It helps them formulate their own sound bite when talking to their neighbors and maybe people that are not as affected by this, but the trickle down is going to really create some problems. So We'll awesome. get there. Well, and, and we're going to have um, this week, we held a joint town hall with California Cattlemen's Association. That was, we had 250 farmers and producers on there and it was, it was very successful. And we're going to do another one, uh, the end of, excuse me, the middle of the second week of October, Great. just basically right when people are starting to receive their ballots in the mail, we want to make sure that, you know, we're really prepared for this. Cool. Well, we'll also link any resources in our show notes for those listeners, and we'll make sure to inform everybody about that town hall coming up in October. Thanks, Anya. Very cool. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Well, thank you, Anya. This was um, very interesting, and I'm sure hopefully that gets uh, members involved in that issue. I now would like to introduce Rick Nicholson. Um, He's a partner at Nicholson Dairy in Ferndale and also an assistant fire chief for the Ferndale Volunteer Fire Department. Um, He's joining Melissa today to discuss some emergency preparedness tips for dairy and livestock producers. Well, thanks, Annie. As Annie mentioned, I'm here with one of our dairy members, Rick Nicholson of Nicholson Dairy in Ferndale. And Rick, you're also a volunteer firefighter, so thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. We're here today, Rick, to just kind of cover a few things we've been getting a lot of questions about at Western. Um, In light of all the fires happening throughout the state, there's a ton of farms and ranches that have never had to evacuate or think about evacuating. And they've been asking about advice or tips that maybe they can employ on their farm. So we thought maybe having someone who has expertise as a farmer and a firefighter would be a good way to go there. So welcome and um, we'll kind of jump right into it. So first of all, I was just wondering if you have any, um, with this new reality, of fires cropping up more frequently and in more of the rural urban interface. Do you have any like maybe top three tips or pieces of advice you would give dairy producers to kind of just be prepared on their farm? Uh, The main thing is just to have a plan. What would you do even though it's unlikely? It's one as we've seen 2020 is the year of oh this has never happened and mother nature says oh hold my beer watch this. And the main thing is to have a plan. Uh, Evacuating a dairy or even a beef ranch or anything of substantial size is no small undertaking. I mean, trying to move several thousand head, 
takes trucks. It's just not going to happen. So where could you go if a hay barn fire broke out? Or, a, you know, is there an irrigated pasture or a pasture with short feed right next door that you can just open the gate and commingle cows with? Uh, not ideal, but it beats losing your whole herd. The other thing we've seen, especially up in our area the last, uh, lately, is you might have a wiring issue that, hey, this outlet died two years ago, so I just kind of temporarily fixed it and it never gets fixed permanently. So make sure those are done and just, you know, have a plan. You know, have a fire extinguisher on each vehicle. They're, you know, they're cheap right now. And um, the other thing is to have your address marked from the sign. I might know where Melissa's Dairy is, but the ambulance or fire crew responding to something that they can't totally obviously see has no clue where, you know, 4271 is. But if it's marked out front, it's a lot easier to find for everybody. Yeah, we've been seeing a lot of those signs with the reflective letters popping up. And I know our fire district funded those for everyone. So those have been super helpful, I think. Yeah, it, it makes it real easy because, like I said, I don't know where Melissa's Dairy is. I know how to drive there, but I don't know that its address is 4271. So that makes it real easy. And the other thing we just uh, our district did in funding this is, it, other than making it easy for us to find at night, is the UPS and delivery guys really love it because... If they're not there every day, they may not recognize your name. So that's uh, something helpful too, because not Google Maps is not always accurate. Definitely. Now, Rick, one of the pieces of advice we've kind of been hearing floated out there is engaging with local emergency services, maybe in the wintertime or before an emergency happens. So if a producer wanted to call up their local fire department, say here in Ferndale, would you recommend that? And maybe what would you recommend as some things they should go over while the fire department's out there walking around? Uh, California has, uh, you have to do your hazardous materials plan and that, and that's technically on, fire with the, uh, on file with the fire department. But if you could do a walkthrough, like during, they could do a drill night or just an orientation to your dairy. It's like, hey, this is here. You know, my fuel tanks are there. Uh, MSDS or first aid's here. And have a meeting point, too. So if you do have, say, a medical emergency and it's out back on a tractor or somewhere not obvious up front, having somebody out front, whether it's an employee or whatever, to lead emergency services in is the best thing. But, yeah, have a plan and reach out to them. So they may be busy right now but during the winter it's a good opportunity because most dairies don't change operations year to year much so yeah good deal and maybe getting some maps on site just in case the county hazmat hasn't connected with their local fire departments yet or where those maps are located that may yep. most people already have the maps and they're in a binder somewhere on your ranch just you know pointing the fire department hey all this information's right here so and that could be key Good deal. Well, Rick, is there anything else you want to share with producers or, or tell our audience today before we let you back out on the farm? Uh, markets are up, markets are down, but the hazards all stay the same, whether it's, you know, first aid type hazards or fire type hazards. So uh, have a plan, take those steps necessary to protect your, I mean, none, none of us are immune to it. So, and reach out. If you don't know, reach out to somebody that might has an idea, whether it's a uh, Western United Dairies, they might be able, your uh, field person could put you in contact with somebody in your area that, if you're not sure. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if producers have further questions, they could always reach out to us by phone or email. But thanks so much, Rick, for taking time. I know you guys are super busy this time of year, and we sure appreciate your tips for producers. And please stay safe out there. Thank you. Well, that was a really good episode. I want to say thanks again, Annie, for jumping in and co-hosting today. We always love having you, Annie. Yeah, no problem. And while I'm here, I'm going to do a little uh, 
uh, pitch for the Thursdays with the Western webinar series. Um, I'm not sure if you um, are aware, but we have been trying to keep our members informed um, on you know, everything going in the industry. So every Thursday at 11 a.m., um, we will be um, presenting some information that's relevant to you. If you have suggestions, feel free to email or call us. And those are more interactive sessions where there's a short presentation, but really open for questions for um, members, not very long, not a big chunk of your day, uh, but worthwhile if you wanna stay on top of things. And so there's not gonna be one next week because it's our monthly board meeting, uh, but the following week we'll have uh, Mr. Sunshine, our uh, Paul Souza, our environmental specialist. We don't have the day yet because of Paul's schedule, but keep an eye out for a date and it will be a very interesting update you won't want to miss. Awesome. Well, I would just like to say again, a huge thanks to Annie for co-hosting today and also your market update every week. It's one of the favorite segments of producers. Um, uh, thanks to also Paul and Anya, our guest Rick Nicholson for making this week's episode possible. If you'd like information on sponsorships or anything about our podcast, feel free to reach out to our office, info at wudairies.com, or you could always give us a call, 209-527-6453. And remember, you can reach out to us with questions, comments, and content requests. Our podcast email is wud.pod at gmail.com. I'm M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com. And Darby, of course, D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. And thanks so much, Annie. We will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wu. D-A-I-R-I-E-S dot com.